Welcome everyone. This is Michelle Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me for my The Power of Reading Week. Where this month in February, mostly in the United States, we focus on Black History Month. But overall, I wanted to focus on the power of reading, how it's very important in our lives to focus on literacy, to focus on how books has a very powerful element in our existence of humanity. It encourages us, it entertains us, it educates us. And this particular author, W.B. Du Bois, Dr. W.B. Du Bois, is one of my favorite, favorite person in history. He was an educator. He was the first black to receive a PhD here in the United States. He toured the world and he became famous when he wrote this book. And he was bold in his writing. He had the power of the pen. And I actually did a movie of him. And I have to just tip my head. I think I'm the first one, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> it's called Dawn of a New Day. It is available on realhouse.org forward slash prestige. And that particular movie took a part of his timeline of his life where he was writing the book, writing the manuscript for the book. When it was released, it went completely supersonic around the whole world. But he was bold with it because he basically went down to the root of the issue of racial injustice. Now I'm focused on this particular essay we're going to focus on today. And again, I'm broadcasting this on both of my podcast shows, Surviving Your Journey to a Success and Michelle Anderson, Short Stories and Beyond, just to focus on the power of reading a book and how it can change your life. And whatever you're going through, it helps you to kind of tune into a perspective of what the author is trying to relay that can encourage you. Of course, we have those books that, you know, give off that energy or that energy. But I'm talking about positive energy that you're able to, when you're reading it, even after you, you read it, you can. it's like you're sitting down at a table drinking tea and you're enjoying what's going around you, which is life, the cycle of life. And you're able to look at things that maybe you didn't understand from that perspective and come to a realization. Sometimes it can be a feeling of just being entertained that makes you smile. That's a giving energy. So I'm talking about those types of books. I want to clarify that. So in this particular book, The Souls of Black Folk from Dr. W.B. Du Bois, it changed my life. When I was going through high school, it still was a lot of, it wasn't segregation, but I would say in the books that we were reading about history, his name never came up. <laughs> so a lot of African-American or black history, whatever you want to call in that regard of identity, was just slavery, MLK, and that's it. And maybe the ministers at that time probably thought that was enough. You know, I remember having a conversation when I got older with different um, people and they just thought, well, I didn't see nothing wrong with it. But I guess that's where the perspective I said earlier, reading a book and reading it from an another perspective is seeing it from their eyes. Because I will guarantee if it was different, they would want to know about their history and the people that contribute to history by writing books or writing music. It's kind of one-sided when you're not able to see it from someone else or to want to know about someone else's culture. So at any rate, today we're going to focus forward and in the happy spirit of the power of reading. We're looking at Of the Crest of the Golden Fleece. This is going to be part one I do because this essay's alone. <laughs> so I'm going to stop at some point and then I'll come back and do the next part. I'll have a data when that's released. So let's get into this, okay? All right. Of the Crest of the Golden Fleece, would I will read a poem. And let's get started.
of the crest of the golden fleece. But the brute said in, in his breast, till the mills I grind have ceased, the witches shall be dust of dust, dry ashes be the feast, on the strong and cunning few, cynic flavors I will stew, I will stuff their mild with overplus until their spirit no longer. From the patient and the low I will take the joys they know, they shall hunger after vanities and still an unhungered goal. Madness shall be on the people, ghastly jealousy is arise. Brother shall cry on brother up in empty skies. This is from William Vaughn Moody. And then we will see some music lyrical sheets here. Then it starts his essay, Dr. W.D. Boys. Of the Crest of the Golden Fleece. Have you ever seen a cotton field white with harvest, its golden fleece hoovering above the black earth like a slivery cloud edged with dark green, its bold white signals waving like the form of billows from Carolina to Texas across their black and human sea? I have sometimes half suspected that here the ring round, Kirsmalas left that fleece after which Jason and his Argonauts went vaguely wandering into the shattering east 3,000 years ago. And certainly one might frame a pretty and not far-fetched analogy of such. Between the ancient and the modest crest of the golden fleece in the Black Sea. And now the golden fleece is found, not only found, but in its birthplace woven. For the hum of the cotton mills is the newest and most significant things in the New South today. All through the Carolinas and Georgia, way down to Mexico, rise these gaunt red buildings, bare and homely, and yet so busy and nosy, with all that they scarce seem to belong to the slow and sleepy land. Perhaps they sprang from those so the cotton kingdom still lives, the world still bows beneath the sector that. Even the markets that once defiled the parvenue have crept one by one across the seas and then slowly, reluctantly, but surely, have started toward the black belt. To be sure, there are those who wag their heads knowingly and tell us that the capital of the cotton kingdom has moved from the black to the white belt. That the Negro of today raises not more than half of the cotton crop. Such a man forget that the cotton crop has doubled and more than doubled since the era of slavery. And that, even granted their contention, the Negro is still supreme in the cotton kingdom. Larger than that on which the Confederacy build its hopes. So the Negro forms today one of the chief figures in the great world industry. This for its own sake and in the light of historic interest makes the field hands of the cotton country worth studying. We seldom study the condition of the Negro today, honestly and carefully. It is so much easier to assume that we know it all, or perhaps having already reached conclusions in our minds, we are loath to have them disturbed by facts. And yet how little we really know of these millions of their daily lives and longings, 
of their homely joys and sorrows, of their real shortcomings and the, and the meaning of their crimes. All this we can only learn by intimate contact with the masses and not by wholesale arguments covering millions separate in time and space and delivering widely in training and culture. Today then, my reader, let us turn our faces to the black belt of Georgia and seek simply to know the condition of the black farmer laborers of one county there. Here in 1890 lived 10,000 Negroes and 2,000 whites. The country is rich, yet the poor people, yet the people are poor. The keynote of the black note is debt, not commercial credit, but debt in the sense of continued inability on the part of the mass of the population to make income cover expense. This is the direct heritage of the South from the wasteful economics of the slave regime. But it was emphasized and brought to a crisis by the emancipation of the slaves in 1860. Doherty County had 6,000 slaves, worth at least two and a half million of dollars. Its farms were estimated at three million, making five and a half million of property, the value of which depended largely on the slave system and on the speculative demand for land. Once marvelously rich, but already partially devitalized by careless and exhaustive culture, the war then meant a financial crash in place of the five and a half millions of 1860. There remained in 1870 only Farms that vowed at less than two million. With this came increased competition in cotton culture from the rich lands of Texas. A steady fall in the norm and price of cotton followed from about 14 cents a pound in 1860 until it reached four cents in 1898. Such a financial revolution was it that involved the owners of the cotton belt in debt. And if things went ill with the master, how fared it with the man? The implantation of Dalton County in slavery days were not as imposing aristocratic as those of Virginia. The big house was smaller and usually one story and sat very near the slave cabins. Sometimes these cabins stretched off on either side like wings, sometimes only on one side, forming a double row or edging the road that turned into the plantation from the main thoroughfare. The form and disposition of the laborers' cabins throughout the Black Belt is today the same as in slavery days. Some live in the self-same cabins, others in cabins rebuilt on the sites of the old. All were sprinkled in, the, in little groups over the face of the land. Centering about some dimple-padded big house where the head tenant or agent lives. The general character and arrangement of these dwellings remains on the whole unaltered. There were in the county outside the corporate town of Albany about 1,500 Negro families in 1898. Out of these, only a single family occupied a house with seven rooms. Only 14 have five rooms or more. The mass live in one and two room homes. The size and arrangements of people's homes are no unfair index of their condition. If then we inquire more carefully into these Negro homes, we, we find much that is unsatisfactory. All over the face of the land is the one room cabin, now standing in the shadow of the big house, now staring at the dusty road, 
now rising dark and somber near the green of the cotton fields. It is nearly always old and bare, built of rough boards and neither plastered nor sealed. Light and ventilation is supplied by the single door and by the square hole in the wall with this wooden shelter. There was no glass porch or ornamentation without, within a fireplace black and smoky, and usually unsteady with age. A bed or a tool, a table, a wooden chest, and a few chairs composed of furniture, while a stray showbell or a newspaper makes up the decoration for the walls. Now and then one may find such a cabin kept scrupulously neat with merry streaming fireplace and hospitality door, but the majority are dirty and dilapidated, smelling of eating and sleeping, poorly ventilated, and anything but homes. Above all, cabins are crowded. We have come to associate crowding with homes and cities almost exclusively. This is primarily because we have so little accurate knowledge of country life. Here in Joshua County, one may find families of eight and ten occupying one or two rooms, and for every ten rooms of house, accommodation for the Negroes. There are 25 persons. The worst tenant abomination of New York do not have above 22 persons for every 10 rooms. Of course, one small, close room in a city without a yard is, in many respects, worse than the larger single country room. In other respects, it is better it has glass windows, a decent chimney, and a trustworthy floor. The single great advantage of the Negro peasant is that he may spend most of his life outside his hovel in the open fields. There are four chief causes of these wretched homes. First, long custom born of slavery was assigned such homes to Negroes. White laborers would be offered better accommodations and might for that and similar reasons. Give better. I'm going to end it there and I will post when I would do part two of the Crest of the Golden Fleece by Dr. W.B. Du Bois. My name is Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today and for my focus on the power of reading. See you in the next one.